0: So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom.
1: PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality.
0: We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed.
1: Hello, this is Justin.
0: And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast
1: an audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality.
0: We come from varied backgrounds.
1: From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies.
0: From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory, to bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be.
1: From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome. We're so excited today. We're talking to Dr. Regina Shan Stoltzfus, who is a professor of peace, justice, and conflict studies at Goshen College. She's also the co founder of the Roots of Justice Anti Oppression Program and co author of two books, one that is forthcoming Been in the Struggle, Pursuing an Anti Racist Spirituality, that's coming out in 2021 and Set Free, a Journey Towards Solidarity Against Racism. Regina, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you.
2: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. This will be fun.
0: Yeah, so I was wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your pedagogical approach. How would you describe what it is you do in the classroom and why you do that?
2: Okay, so I'm in peace studies, which means we talk about all of the terrible things that human beings do to each other and the earth. It's, it's hard stuff and it's our work for the semester. And so one of the things that I didn't start out when I was teaching being aware of that I needed to do more of that I'm more intentional about now is thinking about what the constant barrage of bad news does for all of us. As we are creating a community in the classroom for the purpose, we're learning these things for the purpose of working against all these bad things, building skills, building knowledge, so that we can hopefully co-create a world that is more just, more peaceful. And if we're all burned out and depressed and dread coming into the classroom to have one more hard conversation, we can't do that. So one of the things that I try to pay careful attention to is how do we not let up on the difficulty of our content but also find joy in each other as a community and find joy in the work. And so in some of my classes where it's particularly a hard haul throughout the semester, I've built up a process of community care. I used to use the term self-care And I don't use that as much anymore because self-care has gotten so commodified. And so we talk about community care. We talk about resilience building, and they actually are assigned as part of being in the class, things that we call class openers, where students come in and help us do the transition from, I just came from another class. I just came from lunch. I just came from a nap. I just came from outside and now we're in here and we spend the first five or 10 minutes of class. We've done yoga. We've done primal screams. We've looked at funny cat videos. We've heard poetry. We've done all sorts of things. And sometimes it's a little hard for students to get into it, but once we're like three weeks into the class, it is a wonderful transition moment for us. So that that's, Been a learning for me over the years. The first year that I thought about doing this was it was at the end of the semester in a class called Personal Violence and Healing. That's the one where we do the community care and resilience building. And they have a semester-long research project that they do. It's due at the end of the semester. And the first year that I taught the class, we were done. I had all the papers. And then I had to read these 18 papers without the community that had built them. And it was like, oh, never again am I doing that. So another thing that we do in that class is talk about the semester-long project as a community all the way through the semester, from first idea to research problems to I'm stuck here. And it becomes, even though they are doing their own research projects, it's become a more collaborative process across the breadth of the semester because they're hearing each other in process, they're sharing resources with each other, they're finding connections in whatever the thing is that they're looking at. And so it has helped shape what we do into what I really long for, which is collaboration, community, and resilience strategies all wrapped up in a semester.
1: Thanks for that. I'm really curious about these these class openers and I and I really love the idea that you mentioned joy and a lot of community and resilience. I'm curious, what do you think these class openers do? What are they trans is, you said it's a transitional moment. How do you think that they, you know, work towards those ends of joy and community especially because as professors we know that students and ourselves, we also don't really allow ourselves to look foolish or to have fun sometimes or even to bring yeah. in those other other ways of being. So tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I think that the, the hesitancy that I've seen and even in myself is exactly that not wanting to look foolish for me. It's not wanting to look like I don't take this seriously not wanting to be seen as someone whose scholarly approach is not rigorous, right? Is this, are we in college or are we in second grade, right? I think that because I've been at Goshen College nearly 20 years now, and I've, I've grown in my own teaching and my own sense of myself as a professor, that I've been able to let go some of the things that early on also before tenure, <laughs> that I would not have let myself do. But I've also learned how important it is to have people who are doing justice work, who are in studying peace, studying justice, to be able to stay in it. There are so many people who burn out in their work, whatever it is, And the state of the world at any given moment, let's pick this moment. You know, if we just look at the headlines and we think about our own lives and think about the things that we're worried about and afraid of, and it's easy to get caught up in just everything is terrible. And so I want us to have strategies to avoid that, especially for students, because they're young, they're just starting out, they're learning all of these things. Typically students who are, who are in my upper level classes think of themselves as activists. They are, they are interested and embedded and dedicated to social justice work. And I so want them to be able to stay in it. One of the things that I say a lot when I'm talking about this stuff with students is I want you to live to fight another day. It's, you know, it's cliche, it's trite, but it really is like, what are your strategies for being able to do this work for the long haul? Because we're not gonna end racism, we're not gonna end poverty, we're not gonna end social oppression of any stripe by hitting it hard for a week or a year or while you're in college you all are going to leave here. You're going to get jobs. You're going to get mortgages. You're going to have your own families to take care of. There's going to be so much that gets in the way. Well, not in the way, but there's going to be so much more that you are responsible for. And I don't want you to leave this passion that you have right now for building a better world behind so what can we do now? And it's not just for college students, of course, right? It's for all of us. It's, I often say, I am talking to myself, even as I'm saying this to you, I'm talking to myself because I've been burnt out. I've been like, wow, is this stuff even, are we even making a dent in all of this? On my best days, I believe that we are. And on my worst days, I wonder, does it matter that any of us does this stuff? But I also take comfort in those worst days when I'm like, "Eh, is this really worth the energy that we're putting into it, knowing that there are other people that are doing it. And I can, in fact, like take some time off from thinking about how terrible things are. I can step away from it because I know that I'm going to be able to come back to it. So that's, that's the big thing. And then the transition really is a transition of, I do want the classroom to feel like it is a community. We are doing this work together. And so let's do rituals. And that's a ritual to move from this moment to this moment. So, and I, yeah, I'm, I like rituals. So it's, it's another way of bringing in something that I enjoy into the classroom.
0: I also love rituals. That really really super resonates with me. Yeah. Something that you said in the beginning of your answer about like fighting and you use the terms like burnout and dread in the classroom. And both of those words just like really hit me in my feely spots, right? As we're, (laughs) as we're walking into the semester. And I imagine like, at least for me, I've been noticing with my students over the course of the pandemic, even more of that burnout feeling, even more of that dread feeling, and like a little bit less space for them to feel comfortable like playing and cultivating joy. Mm-hmm. And so, in a certain sense, what you're talking about is probably so timely for a lot of us who are walking into the semester. But I was wondering if you, I don't know, could talk a little bit about how fighting burnout and dread specifically in this like pandemic time to a generation of young people who feel a lot of them like the world is going to end in their lifetime because Mm -hmm. of climate catastrophe. How in these like extraordinary times have you been like responding to that even more present feeling of burnout and dread?
2: Yeah. One of the things that I was pleasantly surprised by at the end of Fall semester and spring semester was how much students did learn, even though we did way less content. Because we you just can't do everything. You're fiddling with the Zoom, you're, you know, the remote people are, you know, there 10 minutes at the beginning of every class is dealing with technology or whatever is is right there in the room. People are worried about their families. People are losing friends and family members. There's all this political turmoil and all of the things. And so we just could not do, I think anyone who taught would say content, <laughs> a lot of content, there just wasn't time to do it. And so, it was really surprising to me when I looked at students' end of semester work. And this wasn't true for everyone. There were some students that were just like, "This is not going to work right now," right, for various reasons. But for the ones who were able to stick with it to the end, their final projects. I don't give many exams, but I, but in some classes I do have exams, and. There was evidence of we did this, (laughs) y'all. We learned some things. And so I took a lot of courage from that thinking, oh, okay. You know, professors, we think that we're, we're all that. And we've got an agenda and we got to get through the agenda and yeah, it's okay to be in the moment and let some of that stuff go and it's okay to acknowledge our humanity. Like we are not super people most of the time. Sometimes we are, but that's a big takeaway from me is that we can be human. We can just be sorrowful about things. We can let the agenda get disrupted because wow, here's a big thing that we really need to talk about. And so we're going to put this aside and we'll figure out how to catch up. So yeah, being able to trust that we can be in the moment, being able to trust that the resiliency strategies that we've practiced, even if we've only practiced them for a week, right? There's a payoff for them. So yeah, a lot of that was for me, girl, you can let some of this stuff go. It's fine, right? There were a lot of shifts that we did. Okay, this assignment clearly is not something that's going to work the way that we have to teach during COVID. So you know what? Let's just take it off the books and I'm not going to replace it. I think there were a couple of those things that I did. So yeah, learning that we can shift, we can change, we can adapt it was still hard though. I think all of us also were super exhausted at the end of the academic year. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I see in in other spaces you've talked about this notion of being unapologetically just and also the the importance of intersectional analysis for for anti-oppression work. Even though this podcast is about some of these scenes, I'm not sure that we actually have have actually asked for working definitions of a lot of these things. So I'm really curious, you know, how do you translate, first off, what those things mean, and then how do they translate to how you approach teaching and, and, and being with the students?
2: Yeah, let's talk about intersectionality. I, a few years ago, I don't know how many years ago it was, but you know, everybody was talking about intersectionality. It became this kind of buzzword. It's not a buzzword, but it was being used one as one. And as I listened to people both in and out of the classroom, not everyone, but I was hearing people talk about it as if the definition was only that we have many facets to our identities. We are raced, we are gendered, we have sexualities, we fit into uh, different classes, all of those things. And that's true. But the way that I was hearing people talk about it was that that's like, that's what it means. That's the whole sum of what intersectionality is that you, that, you know, and you acknowledge that all of us walk around with many facets to our identities. And that got a little irritating to me because that's, that's not what it means, right? So I started including units that, depending on what the class was, like sometimes it was just like throwing this definition out there in its fullness in Kimberly Crenshaw's full definition to say... Here's why we are reading these people, because this. Or here's why it's important to think about the cultural context that we're in when we're working with conflict. Here's why it's important to think about how systemic oppression works when we're thinking about dealing with violence and conflict, right? So I wanted them to have the original full definition, but then I also wanted them to know where it came from and the context out of which the notion of intersectionality arose, and that it had predecessors, right? The matrix of domination. Oh, and I'm not gonna remember the theorist's name right now, but that it's, it wasn't a brand new idea that sprung out of nowhere, but it was built on, built on, built on. And it was a very specific time and place that these legal scholars, we're thinking about intersectionality and how multiple oppressions intensify one another. So I wanted my students to have that full definition. And I was petty enough in the one class where we do a lot of work around intersectionality to tell them, like, when I pull out this definition, this is Kimberly Crenshaw's name. This is how you spell her name. And you're going to be asked about this on the midterm exam. So you're going to be asked to define intersectionality and you're going to tell me the name of the person who coined the term and you're going to spell her name right. So that's me kind of being petty, but it's also like, I really want you to know where this came from and be able to articulate it, that it's much more than just we are diverse in our identities. And it's interesting to think about, I've been doing that for a few years now. And so it's interesting to hear all of the conversation and the pushback on critical race theory and have so many people who could not tell you what critical race theory actually is. That it's what you say critical race theory is and why you're so mad about it, that ain't it. So calm down, everyone.
1: What about that notion of unapologetically just? What is is that... uh...
2: Yeah. Wow. So on our campus last year, or the well, the the January before the world changed, January 2020, our MLK theme was unapologetically just, and I was the the speaker for it. And I think that for the committee, for the MLK committee on our campus, and for me being tasked to talk about that, it really felt like it was time to, we're at a point in time where we, those of us that have this vision of what social justice is and looks like and and want to work towards that for all of us, right? Not just for a particular subset of people, but for all of us. Really have to think about the ways we might have been tiptoeing around and not wanting to offend people, so I don't want to offend people i don't I really don't want to offend people, but I also don't want marginalized people to continue to be marginalized because we don't know how to speak our truth, we people who are interested in a more socially just culture at the risk of being told that we're we're being offensive. So in in that particular talk, I looked back, it was King Day, right? So you have to talk about Dr. King and you should, but I also wanted to think about the people around him, the people who called him in to the work that he did, the people who have been mythologized. And so I really actually talked about Rosa Parks and the mythology of this poor, tired seamstress who one day just was too tired to give up her seat on the bus. And then from that moment on, the civil rights movement sprung, fully formed, you know, And I just wanted to slow that story down and talk about the way that Rosa Parks was socialized as a child, the atrocities that she and her family saw in their neighborhood because of racialized violence and what was spoken into her as a child and as a young woman and how she trained, like she was a trained activist. She wasn't just a seamstress. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there was so much more going on with who she was. And I looked at her and others in that movement as people who knew what they were called into said yes to that call and were not apologetic about it. So that's that's the sense at which I was thinking about that and, and hope to be that kind of person. And, and I'm not always, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to say anything because people might think I'm that person. And well, I kind of am that person. (laughs) If that person is someone who doesn't want people to be harmed because of who they are, doesn't want people to have less opportunity because of who they are. Yeah. I need to, I need to be that person. I need to be that person that's willing to say, this is wrong. This is wrong. And here's, are there ways that we can fix it and not have to apologize for that?
1: I really I really like that because it feels like it it takes it away from an individual just standing by themselves to actually connect to something larger that you're part of this this community as you keep talking about of yeah. folks who've, who've done that in the past.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Part of a community, part of a stream of people, constantly building on each other's work, constantly looking from where we've come and hopefully looking towards where where we want to go and thinking about so how do we actually get there what does it take and one of the things that just going back to you know my reading of reading about rosa parks and reading about the movement thinking about the montgomery bus boycott right that was a year long and it was during a time when a lot of people didn't have cars certainly didn't have two cars and think about the coordination and the cooperation that had to happen for people to get through that year-long boycott you don't do that with a just you know i'm just going to take care of me i'm going to figure out how i'm going to get to work the rest of y'all figure it out and i i love thinking about that because it's like yeah that's what the work is there's no lone rangers to use a really bad term i'm sorry about that but there's no One heroic figure that gets to represent the entire movement, it takes a lot of coordination, a lot of, and those people didn't even have the internet, right? Didn't have cell phones, didn't have the internet. And yet they coordinated and stuck with this boycott long enough so that systemic change happened. Systemic change happened in Montgomery. And then systemic change happened in transportation systems across the country because they stuck to it and figured it out. And it had to be hard. Right. It had to be difficult.
0: I really like this image and insistence on remembering. Right. Like how much unglamorous coordination goes into the work of justice. One of my activist mentors once said to me that in order for the March on Washington to happen, 60,000 cheese sandwiches were made, right? That is a lot of cheese sandwiches. (laughs) And like some people and someone, many, many someones sat there for days making cheese sandwiches so that 60,000 people could eat lunch in the course of this historic event. And that like, that's also the work of justice. Not just getting your name in the paper or getting to coin the fanciest term or being remembered, right, as a leader in the movement. I think sometimes, like, teaching students that moment, the like, how can you engage in the unglamorous, like, boring
2: spreadsheet parts of activism? Exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly. And for, for many of my students that are in peace studies, their first jobs, are likely going to be like the office grunt, right? Okay. <laughs> the spreadsheets and the websites and the folding—I don't know if we still fold up brochures anymore, but you know the really unglamorous stuff. But it's part of the work. It's part of the work.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm curious about uh, you. Had mentioned previously that that you said that you trust resilience strategies that you develop in the classroom. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what that looks like? It, it Obviously, you're you're dealing with very, very challenging themes. So how does that look like? What are those resilience strategies?
2: Yeah, so being able to read what we have to read, right? So I said that I didn't do these things early on, and I noticed what was happening with me. I also noticed, so there's a book that we read in the particular class that I'm thinking about, which is called Personal Violence and Healing. That's the one where they have the the research project. And we spend the first month or six weeks of class, roughly thereabout, we read three texts and one is particularly difficult. And I remember hearing students, maybe the first or second year that we were using this book, coming into class and talking to each other and getting settled and giving each other tips on how to read the book. Don't read it before you go to sleep. I read it when my roommate's in the room with me and I'm like, okay, so I want us to read this book and talk about it, but I also don't want you to, I don't want the book to destroy you, right? And so one of the strategies that was more of a, here's how I'm going to manage this class is I took a book away. I think we were reading four books and now we read two or three. And sometimes it really depends on, as I'm looking at my roster, as much as I'm able to tell about who's in the class and what I know about them, try to make some decisions. Sometimes I get it just right. And sometimes it's like, oh, this is a little bit too much, but it's going back to what I said a little bit ago too, about we can do less content. We can read less things. You know, we we want to, we like to nerd out on stuff, right? And I like, I have my dream job because I get to nerd out on things all day long. I get to read all the books and talk about the books. And okay, so we don't have to read three books. We can read two books and read it very slowly, take it very slowly. So that's that's a strategy that I sort of imposed on the class. In that same class, a few years ago, I had a student, and this was in the part of the semester where students were reporting on their research in process. And one of the students who was an education major was doing, her, her research was about, was about family violence and its effect on children. And I have, I have students choose an audience right? I want you to choose the audience that you're talking to. So the audience that she was talking to was K through 12 teachers. And so she was talking to us, but framing it for for K through 12 teachers. And she had learned a lot of really hard statistics about family violence and its effect on young children. And she's doing this presentation. And in the middle of the presentation, she stops and she says, can we watch a cat video now? And because we had built up in the class, this practice of, for a couple of our students, that was their thing. You know, we all talked at the beginning of the semester about things we do to relieve stress, things we do to like, what do you do? And for a couple of them, it was watching funny cat videos on YouTube. That was a strategy. It wasn't this student's strategy, but in that moment, she knew that we would get it. Like, this is a hard moment. I want to finish this presentation, but I need a minute. And I know that this is a community that knows what it means to say, let's stop and watch a cat video. And so we did. And I loved that moment so much. That student now is an elementary school teacher. And I, you know, I, I knew her before she got to college. And so I keep up with her a little bit, but it's just like, yeah, that's why we do this. That's why we do this. We have these strategies so that we can call upon them when we need them. And so we do breathing exercises. Cause I, that's part of my own personal practice. I do breathing meditations and I have used breathing practices when I, have been nervous or anxious because you can do it and nobody knows that you're doing it. So I teach it to my students. And hopefully they take, you know, take what works, leave the rest behind, but take what works. The expectation is not that everything that we do should become part of your practice, but hopefully between the 20 of us in this room, as we all share these practices, maybe you'll pick up on something that works for you that you didn't know about before, or you thought that was silly, or you didn't think that you'd be the kind of person that would vibe with that. And then because you had to do it, I said, let's all try it. Everything's not gonna be your thing or my thing, but at least we've been exposed to it. And then it's the building it into a practice, building it into the personal practice. And that's part of the reason that we, that we do it as a community. Because in the early iterations of this, I had them, I was still using the language of self-care. I was like, keep a self-care journal and I'll check the journal. And it just became really stressful for everyone because they would forget to do it. And then I'd have to like remind them. And it was just like, ugh, this is, this is, this is not having the result I wanted it to have. So we're not doing that anymore. If you want to journal, that's fine, but I'm not going to make you journal.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love all of these stories and illustrations of community care in your classroom. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to this as a pedagogy where there are texts or experiences. Certainly, you know, my experience of learning how to be a teacher in the academy did not at all think about the classroom really as a community space at all, except insofar as like maybe there was like one mention of like, vague classroom dynamics, but really right. the way we tend to think about, or the way that I think graduate students are taught to think about educating is like, you're taking information from your head and just depositing it into several students, hopefully simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and your approach is so different.
2: Well, it is. And sometimes it's a little scary because it's like, oh, is this really like, are, are we, is this okay? I'm more relaxed about it now than I was at the very beginning. But so in part, it's it's because I trusted myself more. And as I tried things and saw that they worked, it was like, oh, okay, that's better. But it's also learning about different strategies, different pedagogical strategies across the academy, right? How we learn, you know, that that banking, we've known for decades, right? That, that banking method of, of education is just not, it doesn't work. It might work for a small subset of people, but for most of us, it doesn't work. And because some of the voices of people who speak directly into the things that my discipline is about, so pedagogy of the oppressed, right? Teaching to transgress, Bell hooks's book, those are foundational for me in just sort of Thinking about how do we get out of our heads? This is a discipline, peace studies is a discipline where you cannot be in your head all the time. That's not what this discipline is. And so, trusting myself and trusting my students enough to live into that and sort of seeing what happens in classes where the lecture format just is not appropriate. So, I teach med- uh, mediation, and in mediation, yeah, we have to do it. And it's fun to see students at, you know, when you talk about role plays right at the first session and you see some students that are like, wait, role, what, wait, what <laughs> we're going to do what? And we're going to do it every week. Are you kidding me? I'm like, yes. And it's going to be great. <laughs> but how are you going to learn to do mediation without doing mediation? Right? You have to. And so trusting, seeing what happens in those settings, even for people who the last thing on earth that they want to do is a role play and figuring out how to how to work with people who are at different places. Like, I'm I'm not gonna force everybody to do the role play, but I'm gonna invite you in. And I'm also going to invite you to think about what it means to take this class that most of you don't have to take majors do have to take it but other people don't have to take and and really think about so how are you going how if you really 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 don't want to do role play and i've only had one person i think that's that was just like really 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 don't want to do this think about so what does that mean for being in this class and how how can we work with that so Seeing what happens in classes like um, my mediation class and my conflict class, where there's also a lot of group work and just seeing how students embody what we're working with helped me think about, okay, I I can take this to other classes that started out being more more lecture heavy and just thinking about how do I give some of that away? in the back of my mind, even now, even knowing that it works and knowing that it's a more fulfilling journey for most of us, there are, there are students who would prefer for their professors to just lecture and then I give it back to you. So I, I know that I still have those students and I, I think about them too. And so how am I going to work with students for whom that's their preferred style? What, are, what am I going to do for them? In the back of my mind, there is still always like, ooh, what if the dean walks by right now? What is she going to think's going on in here? Like, are we just goofing off or is or, or are we really? And that's more about me than my dean. It's really more about me just like, oh, I'm having too much fun. Is this work right?
0: <laughs> it's a good problem to have, right? Mm-hmm. But is this work I'm having too much fun?
2: Yeah, yeah. that's right.
0: well thank you so much for coming to talk to us today it was a real joy and a real pleasure and i know it's given me a lot to think about and i'm sure it will give all of our listeners a lot to turn around and think about as they are moving toward implementing ever more just and radical pedagogical practices thank you so much
2: thank you very much this was a really fun conversation i enjoyed talking to both of you so much
1: yeah thank you
0: that was a really great conversation, Justin. I know that a lot of yeah. stuff is really exciting and bubbly in my brain right now. What are you thinking about?
1: Yeah. One of the things I really loved that, that was mentioned was this finding joy, which was tied onto that conversation around burnout. And I think right now, a lot of us are creating our syllabi for the next year to come, and we're living in this prolonged pandemic with the Delta variant now. And so I think finding joy and and remembering what are our resilience strategies to avoid burnout. I think I needed that conversation. It kind of helps me go back to what are the things that keep me balanced, that keep me finding joy in all of this. So I really appreciated that.
0: Yeah. And I also really appreciated the idea of like community care that like, like facing the structures that cause burnout and anxiety and frustration and cause us to exit a lot of these institutions or causes is like it's not necessarily something that you can tackle on your own. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, doing more yoga isn't going to make the pandemic go away. Yeah. And yeah. I really, I really like the idea of really centering that what it is that we need to be doing, both like to fix the structural conditions, but also to live in them and continue to fight in them is something mm-hmm. that's that's not just each one of us individually, but as something that we have to do together as a community.
1: Yeah, I I liked how it kind of toggled back and forth because when she was talking about her resilience resiliency strategies with the students, they are personal, but then she's doing them in a community space. And then analytically, right, when we're shifting away from understanding intersectionality as purely just an individual identity, a multiplicity of identity Mm -hmm. to actually something structural and power based, it forces you to think about those, you know, those 60,000 cheese sandwiches that you mentioned. It forces you to think about even, as you mentioned, just sort of chipping away at the structure rather than just sort of being on on an island on your own. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And I also really like how she was talking about the way that like the process of doing research itself is communal oh. and working into the pedagogy, like the moments of checking in about like, how is the research going? What are the problems I'm encountering? And then presenting the research at the end. I think we often think about like, oh, yeah, the teaching is the part. And teaching and service are the parts of your academic life where you're in community with others. But research is the work of solitary genius or something. <laughs> that's obviously false, right? Like we, yeah. like we know this, like we've developed our, our ideas with other people. We have dialogue yeah. with other people. Even when we're not directly co-authoring or working on big research teams, knowledge is a collective communal project. And mm-hmm. the fact that sometimes, you know, like there's only my name written uh, you know, on my book is in certain ways like a it's like a trick. It's an illusion. Yeah. It's really the product of a whole community's investment in knowledge seeking and justice seeking. And I really like yeah. foregrounding that for students too.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that because then that what that means is that our conversation, she touches upon sort of the communal aspect in many different levels, not only just mm-hmm. sort of individual, Resiliency strategies, but then also analyzing in terms of intersectionality, and also researching, right? And that you're not necessarily yeah. always a sole author, if there's even such a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. The thing that I'm thinking about still too is, um, and it just sort of now dawned on me when when she was mentioning this, but how we were really still successful with less content because yeah. of the right, because of the pandemic realities, and in fact, by making it having less content. It allowed me, and it seems like it allowed her and probably yourself as well, more time to just be with the students in a way that's more humane, right? That's like showing your humanity, showing that you care, recognizing that there's other things going on in life. And so I, I'm thinking that I'm always trying to find that balance, though, I think what, what Regina was talking about as well, which is, you know, how much can we, is it, is it only two readings, you know, two books, or is it four books? Who's in the class? How do we adapt? But then also, how do we keep enough space for for us to really sort of dive into it for the students to really digest and make it relevant to their lives?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think sometimes people want to counterpose the, like, amount of content and the, like, being a human with your students. (laughs) But, like, for me, these are actually totally the same thing. Like, Mm. I think if you just, like, cram content into a syllabus in one week or six months that is just going to fall straight out their ears that's not a model of teaching i don't think where like content is being absorbed and metabolized and really made into something that's actionable and at someone's fingertips sometimes i hear people oppose these things but i actually think they're part one part and parcel of the same thing like the more human i am with my students the more human their connection with the material and the content Mm. is going to be and the better they're going to learn it.
1: Yeah. That's a good point.
0: Which is not to say like I teach nothing. Right. Or like we spend the whole semester reading one sentence, but I think being disciplinarily trained as a philosopher really helps me with this. Like when I was in graduate school, we took entire courses on a single book and that was it. Like you read one book all semester period. Yeah, a really different, like, close textual reading approach. But, like, I can now, several years later, you know, I've been out of Uh grad school a long time, right? Like, I can tell you tons about every book I ever read in graduate school. And when I talk to other people who were schooled in a different model, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't know. We were supposed to read four books a week. I don't remember 98% of the things that were assigned to me. And when mm-hmm. I hear that, I'm like, how is that model, the prioritizing content model, how is that actually serving our students? If even the nerdiest among them, right? The ones that were like, I'm going to go get a PhD are like, yeah, I have no idea what that was.
1: <laughs> yeah, How is yeah. that
0: really teaching the material? For me, I don't think it is. Yeah,
1: You know, I think I think it comes down to our conversation with Regina around this idea of like, you know, are we being taken seriously? And of course, if we're junior scholars... Or if you're trying to teach outside of your expertise or outside of your discipline, you're going to feel that pressure, right? The, the dean walks by and you're in the middle of talking about feelings or, you know, maybe having a primal scream off like, like Regina had mentioned, then obviously you're going to start feeling like you're being judged. And I think for me, the challenge comes from like, okay, so your, your background is philosophy, mine's international relations, but I'm trying to speak to the margins of my discipline or outside of my discipline. And I know that just sort of taking an approach that allows students to really resonate and connect their own experiences to the content, that's what resonated with me. And so that makes sense that it should resonate with others. Contrasting that to, I know how international relations courses are typically taught. And it's like, it's that banking model, right? That was mentioned that Paulo Freire mentions, which is, you know, you're an empty vessel and we're just sort of making deposits in this bank. And that doesn't work. But the question of, fake it till you make it? Or are we seen as serious scholars? Are we seen as as serious educators if we're trying to bring in humor, joy, resiliency strategies? And ultimately, I think, right, it like gets out of the point of asking ourselves, well, what's, what is true education? Like, what's the, what's the Mm -hmm. point of what we're doing? Right? Is it just to be able to have close textual reads? Mm -hmm. Or is it something else? Totally. Yeah. One thing I, I, hear, I have a note here. I, I really liked how she was saying how you know, she was she was really nitpicking on you need to know Patricia Hill Collins' name, how to spell it, right, and how to properly cite it.
0: Kimberly Crenshaw.
1: Uh, oh, sorry. I'm. Yeah, I have my notes. <laughs> I have in my notes Patricia Collins because she's the one who did the Matrix. Matrix of domination. Of domination. Yes. Right, and she's sorry, also but I would one be who...
0: remiss if I didn't correct yeah, I you in the context of this, Stephen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But that is to say that I, I appreciate what under underlies that, which is this, mm-hmm. um, from what I understand as these, you know, a feminist citational practice. Yeah. And then also knowing that she draws from the example of, of Rosa Parks, mm-hmm. you know, and so I know Patricia Hill Collins mentions that if you look at how as a society we've had this great progress in, in human or civil rights, you know, it's not often happening or starting at the university, but it's happening and starting by action, by normal people's action.
0: And yes, think, no, <laughs> it is
2: not coming for the universe. <laughs>
1: no, it's not. And so to to actually say, like, yeah, these ideas were, were generated from thinking about Rosa Parks, from what she's mm-hmm. done. That this idea actually has a person who brought it into context, like who, who brought it forward, Kimberly Crenshaw. To me, I think that's part of our critical approach that we should model. And I think Regina models it nicely to make sure. That students know where these thoughts are coming from, where these ideas are being generated, the spaces, because those spaces are often marginalized into looking at it pejoratively, like activist spaces or, you know, non-academic spaces.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, oh, this is one of my, like, deepest and most intense pet peeves is, like... So much of the so-called like radical academic theory and knowledge is Mm -hmm. actually produced in the street by activists. These are ideas Mm -hmm. that circulate and critiques that circulate in activist spaces for so long before an academic writes them down and puts their name on them and gives them a kind of sexy jargon term. And then it's like the academic that gets crowned as the originator sometimes of a concept. And then everyone's like, look, it's the academics who are the most radical. And I just, I find this this historiography to be so problematic and so false. And really what it does is I think it like reifies the idea that knowledge and ideas are made in the academy with people with PhDs and not by non-academic human beings who are going about their lives, producing knowledge about it all the time. And so like even sometimes when there's great feminist citational practice of published texts, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we have more to go. And I'm so excited that Regina does this of saying like, oh, even beyond the feminist citational practice of published material, there's also the feminist citational practice of going back to the streets, to activists, to people Mm -hmm. who are really the originators of these these ideas and critiques.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I loved when she said that she heard her students sharing strategies of how to read so that it doesn't bring you down. Mm -hmm. And so to me, she's embodying everything that we're talking about, which is, right, we're not educating people so that they can just write articles. Mm -hmm. We're educating people so that our students are equipped to survive, to navigate life, to navigate hardship, and that this isn't an overnight project. If we're talking about working towards justice, it's going to take and require a long view of the whole scenario. Yeah, I like that. Teaching not only for publications, but also to uh, navigate life and to see what the actual people are doing to survive in this world.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great note to end on. This like yeah. what education is is really for and what we're doing is to keep us in the struggle for justice long term. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh yes. go forth and engage in community care practices that allow you to remain in the struggle for justice long term.
1: Thanks so much. See you next time.
0: Bye. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame.
1: The music is by David Hazardus and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: See you next time.